Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Cadence Podcast. This project has been in the works for two years now, so I'm extremely excited to bring you this first episode. On Cadence, we look at one album that has influenced someone in the Winnipeg music scene. I'm so pleased to have John Anderson as my first guest. John Anderson is an acclaimed musicologist and an award-winning author of 14 music biographies, including Neil Young and Randy Bachman. He teaches music history and popular culture classes at McNally Robinson Booksellers, and he even opened up for Led Zeppelin with a band in 1970 when he was only 17 years old. You can definitely say that John knows his stuff when it comes to music. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy episode one of Cadence. All right, well, hello, and welcome to the first episode of Cadence Podcast. I am very pleased to be joined by uh, John Anderson for the first episode. So thank you for coming down, John, and welcome to the show. It's my pleasure, Jonathan. I'm, I'm happy to be here. So, uh, you know, on Cadence, we, um, we're going to p- kind of dissect one album that has influenced you over the years in some kind of respect. So um, when we were talking earlier, you had said that that album for you is the 1965 debut album from the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. I was born in Chicago So I guess just to start off, um, why is this the one that has influenced you the most? Okay, it. Um, I mean, <laughs> I, there question. are hundreds <laughs> of albums I could have picked. Yeah. But in, in terms of my own personal, um, I guess, growth as a musician, because I started first as a musician, uh, this album was, um, it was like everything was... was in black and white, and all of a sudden, when I got this album and put it on, it was like now everything was Technicolor. Uh, just to give some some background to it, um, I was of the right age when the British Invasion hit, and you know the Be- I saw the Beatles and the Ed Sullivan Show and and all of that. And of course, I wanted I wanted to be musical. I wanted to be a Beatle you know, or a Dave Clark Five guy, so I wanted to play guitar. And in in sixty, and my my brother had listened to surf and music and and Beach Boys and Janet Dean kind of stuff. I never really clicked with that kind of music. It was more his generation than mine. So I was of the right age for the whole British invasion thing to happen. And uh, you know, buying the records, and I got a guitar. And what what we were hearing a lot from what was called the Mersey Beat bands. And the Mersey Beat was like the first wave of the British invasion. It's the Beatles, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer with Dakotas, the Searchers, the Dave Clark Five. Peter and Gordon, these kind of bands that were kind of poppy, pop music. And certainly the Beatles were like that. The Beatles weren't as innovative as they would get a little later on. They, they, they developed um, a unique sound, but that sound was very much based on their American influences. I mean, they listened a lot to Chuck Berry, Little Richard, uh, but also the girl groups like the Cookies and the Donays and the Shirelles, uh, very influenced by them. So the role of, of a lead guitar player in Mersey beat bands was always a very supportive role. You played, um, if you had a solo, you kind of mimicked the melody and you might throw a little few things in and around it, but you pretty much mimicked the melody and George Harrison did that. And the sound tended to be very clean and certainly there was no kind of rawness to it. And, uh, but for me, I guess it's the the, the historian in me from, from being a kid, 
um, when I got Beatle albums or Jerry and the Pacemakers albums, I looked to see who wrote the songs. Most people didn't. I mean, most of my, you know, 12 and 13-year-old contemporaries thought the Beatles wrote uh, Twist and Shout. Or they wrote, you know, I really, you really got a hold on me or please, uh, you know, please Mr. Postman. But I looked and saw that they were different names. I saw names like the Isley Brothers and Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and the Marvelettes, you know, just off of Beatle albums alone. And that, that piqued my curiosity because I hadn't heard any of this stuff. I, I wasn't old enough really to have connected with the Shirelles in the early 60s or the Marvelettes in the early 60s. You know, I, I missed all of that. And, and granted, we didn't get a lot of that stuff played in Winnipeg. But I was always very interested in, in what are the sources? What are the sources of this, of this music? But still, on a lead guitar level, the Mersey Beat bands tended to play very, very pop-oriented songs. Lots of good singing, you know, um, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, solo, verse, chorus, you know, and you're out. Two and a half minutes, uh, you, know, at, you know, about that, that length of time. But it's when I heard the Rolling Stones. And it wasn't until, I mean, the Beatles were like February of 64, and then, you know, everybody went nuts over all of that and what followed the British invasion stuff. But it wasn't until later in 64, and I, I'm going to say it's probably not till fall of 64, that, I, that I, I picked up on the Rolling Stones, and it was a really different sound. The Beatles had a very well-arranged, a very clean, orderly sound. The Stones, it sounded like they just kind of set up the amps in the studio and said, okay, one, two, three, and away they went. It was that, that rawness to it that had an appeal to me. And, and I, I know for a fact that it, it, it had a, an appeal to a lot of budding musicians um, who heard something more, who heard something different. And the Stones had two guitars uh, that kind of interwove around each other, which the Beatles didn't necessarily have. And, and, Keith, Richard and, and Keith Richards and Brian Jones together really had a unique dual guitar sound. I'm not talking dual guitar like leads like the Allman Brothers, but the way they used the two guitars and the chords on them. But the records were rough, and they were raw. And in looking at uh, a lot of the credits for them, it was people that I didn't know. I mean, Rufus Thomas, Muddy Waters, you know, Slim Harpo, these kind of people who I didn't really know about. And in fact, what the Beatles were doing was bringing American earlier pop music to American kids, a new generation. The Stones were bringing American blues from like Chicago and Memphis and these kind of places to young American teens, to a whole new new audience. So it was a different kind of guitar sound. It was a different kind of, of lead guitar sound as well because it was more improvised. Um, and, and that had an appeal to me too. But it was still, there was, there was an element still of tameness to it. Or at least I didn't think of it at the time until I then heard what could really be done. But it was still fairly tame. But it was the rawness of it, and it was the it was the electric blues that appealed to me. And it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't leave the. I didn't live on the Mississippi Delta. You know, and my father was an unemployed drunk or anything like that. So you had all these blues people who came in from those experiences. But the blues was a fun music to play. It was a fun. It was raw. It was. It was even easier to play. So I kind of basked under the light of some of those bands, like the Yardbirds, who were from the blues. And uh, the animals, again, drawing from blues and the stones. But then, and it had to be January of 66, okay? Um, every Saturday, my friends and I, and we were all musicians and record collectors and music geeks, pimply-faced kids. We would go every 
Saturday downtown. And we, we would do the strip. And that was between Eaton's and the Bay. Well, we'd actually start at the Bay because we would take the Cordon bus and then end up at Eaton's. But we would also go a little further because, uh, like, between Eaton's and the Bay, you had all the music stores on the north side. You had Lillian Lewis Records. You had my favorite place, the Record Room. You had well, Winnipeg Piano downstairs. I mean, it was just a cave of wonders with all these guitars and amps all over. If you went on Kennedy, just around the corner off Portage, you had Lowe's Music. Um, if you went a little further uh, the other way, heading kind of west from the Bay, you had Hammerton's Music, which was instruments, and you had Music City, which was records. And if you went past Donald Street... Past Eaton's, a couple of blocks, you got to Crofts Music. And these places didn't get, you know, didn't get the traffic that the places between Eaton's and the Bay did. But that was a, that was a Saturday. And you'd, you know, have, you'd maybe have, have played a chips at Picardy's or something, and that was it. I mean, looking at records, looking at amplifiers, looking at guitars, all of that was like an every Saturday thing. And in the summers, it was like every day. But one this one January, we, myself and Mark Thiessen and probably Grant Elliott, we ventured down to Crofts, and we went downstairs. Crofts was, was pianos and organs, and we went downstairs, and they had a little bit of a, a guitar department and, and electric organs, the rock organs. And then there was a guy running it, and he was a long-haired kind of guy. I mean, not shoulder-length, but for the time, over his years. His name was Paul Stewart. You know, he, he, I didn't realize at the time he was playing in bands. He was playing in the shags. They played community clubs. They talked to girls. Um, and he was there, and he, he said to us, because we were hanging around, and we're talking to him about guitars. I mean, we were just novices. We've been playing guitar maybe a year. And he, um, he said to us, you've got to get this album. He said, it's, it's the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. It's, I don't know if he said debut, but it was their debut album. And he said, it'll blow you away. I mean, he may have said, blow your mind, although I'm not sure that was even a, a phrase at the time. And so, I mean, being diligent, what did we know? I mean, this guy, hey, he's got beetle boots and he's got long hair and he plays in a band. He must know something we don't know. So we then trudged back to the record room. And the record room was my like home away from home. And the, the fellow who ran the record room, and I'm, I'm sure the record room wasn't much bigger than even this studio. And Richard Zerber ran it, and he was always so patient with me because as I did delve more into the blues, I'd come in asking for these obscure blues records, and he'd always kind of get them, find them somehow, order them in. Anyway, they had the Paul Butterfield Blues Band's debut album. Bought it. And back in those days, Mark Thiessen and I would kind of would each buy an album and then just kind of trade back and forth all the time. So I think we did that. Uh, I think he got the Blues uh, Project album. Took that album home, the Butterfield Blues Band album, knew nothing about them. No background. There was no, I mean, there's no internet. And there wasn't even rock journalism then. You know, there was 16 magazine, Win a Dream Date with Davy Jones. Um, so it was all new. Put the record on, and I swear to God, it was like the, the hair on my arm stood on end. I had never heard music like that. I'd heard blues. I mean, the Stones played blues. The animals played blues. But I'd never heard this electrifying, aggressive, intense music. Uh, I mean, Paul Butterfield playing harmonica, he just wailed. And he wailed into a, right into the microphone, so he got this great sound. And um, the band was just chugging with this really strong rhythm. And on top of all of that was Mike Bloomfield, who I knew his name because I, I had bought Dylan's albums and I had Highway 61 revisited and I had like a Rolling Stone and he had played the guitar on that. And so I kind of knew who he was. 
but I had never heard electric lead guitar played with such, as I said, aggressiveness, such intensity, such bite that it, it, it did. I mean, it, it blew my mind. It, it became, I, I lived under the light of Mike Bloomfield and the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, you know, for at least a year or more. I mean, that was, that was my music. That's the music I went back to all the time. And it, it encouraged my desire to play blues and to play blues lead guitar. And I, I literally spent, you know, hundreds of hours sitting, learning, learning the licks from Born in Chicago or, you know, look over yonder's wall or I got my mojo working. You know, these, all these songs that Bloomfield was playing, he was so ahead of the curve of, of all the other guitar players around at that time. As I said, nobody played like that. The band didn't play like that. Or no other band played as with the intensity of the Butterfield Blues Band. And what, what it was was really, these were young guys. These were young white guys. I mean, Bluefield came from a wealthy family. His parents owned um, a distribution business for, for um, restaurant salt shakers and all that sort of thing. And Butterfield's father was a very prominent lawyer in Chicago. So they didn't grow up on the South Side. But as teenagers, they went and hung out on the South Side. And they'd hang out at a place called Pepper's Lounge, which was like where Muddy Waters and Junior Wells and Buddy Guy would, would hang out. And they were accepted by the old blues guys because they were very authentic. But being young, being energetic, I mean, by this, by this point, you know, Muddy Waters is in his 40s or more, and Junior Wells, I, he may have even been dead by then. But these were young guys who had such an affinity, such a, a love of this music genre, the blues, that they brought that, that, that youth, the, the, the energy of youth to this music, and you know, the intensity of, of youth, uh, and, and, and a real sense of, of, of being zealous about it, and, and, and wanting to spread the word. I mean, the Stones started that way. They wanted to spread the word of Jimmy Reed and, and these other blues guys. And they did. I mean, they, they certainly got me and a lot of others into it. But the next logical step for us was Butterfield, the Butterfield Blues Band. And, uh, you know, I, I go back to that album every once in a while. Of course, I've got it, you know, digital now. But I go back to it every once in a while, and I just I sit back, and I just, I just still, I'm still in awe of the playing and, and the energy that that album has created. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I had never actually heard that album before until you had said that that was the one that influenced you most and i yeah it was it's very electric it is it's absolutely is and yeah you know even i mean they're taking songs just a lot of them are covers they're taking songs that that were recorded you know in a very simple way like at chess studios in chicago it might be an upright bass and one guitar you know it might not even be a drum and they're taking those songs and they're just jolting them with electricity and and uh again this vigor mm-hmm so would you say there's, um, like, obviously there's the songs you would learn on guitar, but were there, like, specific tracks? Like, and I know there's a couple instrumental ones, or was it just kind of the whole thing? Oh, I love the whole album, start yeah. to finish. And, you know, back in those days, you you rarely had that, because albums weren't treated the way they, they would be in the latter 60s, where it was like a piece of art. And, and you know, you... you, you Sequencing the songs was important back in those days. Uh, if you bought a Dave Clark Five album, you know it had the hit on it, you know, "Glad All Over," and it had a bunch of filler. 
you know, a bunch of songs that they did, you know, real fast in the studio and threw them on the album. This didn't have any of that. I mean, there was to me there was no filler. It was intense from from the first needle on the track to when you know the record ended on on the second side. But I think for me the opening track, "Born in Chicago," remains definitive. <laughs> And I know I'm not alone in this. I know there's a, there's a, a lot of, I don't want to say guys, because guys were listening to this music and playing it. A lot of, a lot of guys who are now my age who felt the same way, who, who got into that album around the same time and felt that energy from Born in Chicago. And, and in fact, Born in Chicago for a couple of years was... was as a song that bands did, you know, in the, even if they weren't blues bands, you know, to go see the Mongrels, who are a pop cover band, and all of a sudden they go into, you know, Born in Chicago. I was like, it's really not your type. But uh, it was just because people expected that. So, you know, I it might just be because I'm young and, you know, I wasn't around at the time. But I'm interested because when I listen to this, I hear a lot of what Zeppelin, like obviously Zeppelin and other bands like that were influenced and took tricks, I would say, from, um, you know, an album like this. So why do you think that, like, a group like this didn't necessarily make it on the same mainstream level and just critical, a universal level that a band like Zeppelin or or another kind of bluesy rock band did? Well, I mean, you have to consider with Zeppelin uh, history and context. Um, They would come out about in in, in form in 68, and their first album would be released in 69. uh, And they came out of the British blues scene. You know, and the Arbridge started as a British, you know, blues band, you know, the Metropolitan Blues Quartet or something, uh, and and they took the blues and they took it into different areas. And I always call it when Jeff Beck joined the Yardbirds, he took them on a sonic excursion because with Beck it wasn't about BB King licks, it was about experimental sounds and soundscapes and all of that. So he really allowed them to to progress. And when you listen to songs like Shapes of Things or Over Under Sideways Down or Happenings Ten Years Time Ago by the Yardbirds, you're hearing the first real tap at what would be psychedelic music. before the. I mean, we're a year away from 67. This is a 66. And they're really, they're really setting the groundwork for, what, for the experimental sounds and the, and the Eastern-influenced sounds of, um, of psychedelic. Jimmy Page joins the Yardbirds, and he takes that even further with them. The, the sonic experiments, and he takes them away from the blues. You know, he takes them away from the blues. What Zeppelin did, the first album was a bluesy album, and it was recorded in about, what, 37 hours, that, and it was recorded cheap, and it was basically their, their, their stage repertoire. And so there was a fair amount of blues on that album because they're still at the tail end of the blues boom. And when I talk about the blues boom in England, it's really from 67 to about 69 or 70. And it's John Mayles Blues Breakers, you know, with Mick Taylor. And it's uh, Fleetwood Mac with Peter Green, not Buckingham, Nixon, you know, go your own way stuff, but really strong blues. Chicken Shack uh, and, you know, Coliseum. All these other strong Savoy Brown, Savoy Brown too. These bands who were really much based in the Chicago blues style. But they played it differently than Paul Butterfield. Okay, they played it differently, and one of the reasons they played it differently was Eric Clapton. In 1966, Eric Clapton 
It was recorded in, in late 65. We didn't get it over here until, wow, late summer of 66. His album with John Mayle called um, John Mayle and the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. And it's called the Beano album because on the cover, Eric Clapton's reading a Beano comic book. And he really inaugurated that rock-slash-blues guitar sound, distorted. I mean, he used a Marshall amp, you know, whereas Mike Bloomfield with Butterfield used a Fender Twin and just turned it on full, which at the time when I read that, I was like, oh, my God, you know, that's like 90 watts on full. But, you know, Clapton got this, this distorted sound. And I remember reading in Hit Parader, which was a hip magazine, Eric Clapton said, well, I don't use any fuzz tone effects. And I'm thinking, what? The whole album is all fuzzy. And I didn't understand at the time what, what overdriving was, you know, cranking the amp and fall. And Marshalls are made to be overdriven. But he got that distorted sound. He got that B.B. King, Freddie King, Otis Rush kind of a buddy guy sound uh, from it. And, and that became the sound of British blues. And it was a heavier guitar sound than Mike Bloomfield. And it was a distorted sound. And Jimmy Page took that and, you know, he, he took it to Mars. I mean, he took it to Jupiter. He took it further away, especially on the second album. The second album really defined Led Zeppelin. Because, and the big difference is in guitars. On the first album, Jimmy Page is playing uh, a Fender Telecaster. And Telecasters have a thinner sound. And there's nothing wrong with them. I had a Telecaster for years. It's a thinner sound. I mean, you can get little heaviness from it through, you know, Marshall or a fuzz tone. It's a thinner sound. Between the first and the second album, they toured the States and Page bought an uh, old Les Paul, 1959 Les Paul. And Gibson Les Pauls have a thicker, fatter, heavier sound. So when he plays the opening chords to... Yeah, Hold that Love. It has so much more oomph, so much more power, so much more strength, because it's, it's, it's the defining sound of hard rock from that point on. It's a Gibson Les Paul and a Marshall amp. And that, that's the template right there. Started with Clapton, but it was Page that made it de rigueur for everybody. So Bloomfield and the boys kind of got left behind that. When uh, the Butterfield Blues Band went to England in 66, I think Bloomfield saw that all these blues guitar players, Clapton, Peter Green in, in um, John Mayle, and then later in Fleetwood Mac, they were all playing Les Pauls. So when he came back, he got a Les Paul. And he got a bit of a heavier sound to it. But they already had been kind of passed over. And, and what I mean by that is they were too authentic blues. So they weren't going to get mainstream appeal. The Yardbirds could be into blues, but they could do Heart Full of Soul over under Sideways Down. They could have pop hits. Manfred Mann were bluesy jazzy, but they could do pop hits. The animals were very bluesy, but they could have pop hits. Butterfield didn't do that. You know, Butterfield, they, they were authentic. I mean, they, they were the real deal. And that kind of limited, as soon as you kind of pigeonhole yourself, it's tough to get out of that pigeonhole. Whereas the British bands playing blues were able to go beyond that, you know, and, and, and have that... that um, morph, metamorph, I don't know the word, that transition, I guess is the best word, into a heavier rock sound. And when you talk about hard rock and heavy rock in the 70s, and you start talking about, you know, Zeppelin, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, you know, all of these bands, Uriah Heep, they're coming out of the school that Zeppelin came through. They're not coming out of the Chicago Paul Butterfield style. And it's sad for me that uh, 
like I, did, I did a course a couple of years ago. I, I do courses at Pignelli Robinson. And I did a course one year called, uh, um, oh, I, something along the title of The Five Great Blues Rock Guitar Players. And of course, I had Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton. And the other one I had was Mike Bloomfield. And the majority of the people who came to that class had no idea who Mike Bloomfield was. And I started with him. And uh, a lot of people who were there said, wow, I've never heard anything like this. I've never heard of him. I've never heard any of his stuff. And then went back, dug it up, you know, whether they bought vinyl or they went out and got it digitally and got into this because he's kind of forgotten. You know, he didn't, he didn't make that transition to the hard rock, heavy rock stuff that his contemporaries in England did. And so the Butterfield Blues Band kind of gets lost in the, the evolution of music. Yeah, so the you know I th- I think um, they ended up like the the band themselves ended up having like six or seven albums. So did they kind of keep the same formula of just that Chicago hard blues throughout the whole kind of throughout their whole discography? Well, they did. I mean, Butterfield mixed it up a little bit. Bloomfield was only on two albums. Mm-hmm. The second album called East West was really experimental, surprisingly, because they did a song called East West, which was a, a 13 minute jam, but it was it was modal. It was it was Asian or Eastern sounding, which means they just stayed on one chord. And and then you just kind of weave around it. And it's really Mike Bloomfield playing kind of the sinewy sounds of, of almost like a sitar. Like it had that Asian flow to it and, and, and sound and style and that hypnotic sounds of Asian, Middle Eastern kind of Ravi Shankar music. And I remember when I bought the album and, I, and you know, very bluesy until you get to all of a sudden to this song. And it was my, I sort of felt he's not, he's not long for the Butterfield Blues Band. He's going to want to go on. And he did. He, and he went on and formed the Electric Flag. Butterfield then brought horns into the band. So he went deeper into the blues. And brought you know, a full horn section to be able to do, you know, I've just been drifting and drifting kind of blues with the horns, you know, just riffing behind. And Elvin Bishop became uh, the lead guitar player. He had been the rhythm player sort of under, or the second guitar player under Bloomfield. But again, music was changing. Music was moving on. Butterfield tried to get into a little more of a soul kind of a thing and a little more of a jazzy thing, too. When they played, uh, when they played Woodstock in 69, they were, they were kind of already getting into a jazzy thing. But... Um, Time had, time had passed them by. And, you know, <laughs> also the, the personal habits of some of the guys in the band. I mean, Mike Bloomfield was a heroin addict. Paul Butterfield was a heroin addict. <laughs> and the other guys were alcoholics, you know. I mean, they didn't just play the blues. They lived it. <laughs> you know, you can't really, yeah, it's pretty tough to maintain a career. Maintain a career. Well, look at Keith Richard, but he had four <laughs> other guys around him to help him. Yeah, it's amazing to me how Keith Richards is still going. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I love the fact that he's, He's charming. He is. And he's witty and he's funny. I loved his biography, life, yeah. his autobiography. And I, I initially approached the book with trepidation because I thought, oh, is this going to be a pharmaceutical? I've been reading about all the drugs he took. But it wasn't like that at all. His personality shone through and it's in such a wonderful, warm way that you just couldn't help but like the guy. You know, he's the kind of guy that you'd love to just kind of go for a beer and hang out and just pardon my language, shoot the shit with, yeah. um, because he just, there's no pretense to him at all. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so would you consider this, this is an interesting kind of thing to me, where would you consider this um, 
like your favorite record or is it just the one that influenced you most? Um, is there kind of like a difference in your mind between influence and maybe just music you? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess if, if you asked me what's my favorite album, I, I probably wouldn't have come in with that. Mm -hmm. But the way you phrased it to me was album that influenced me. Mm -hmm. Then absolutely. I mean, this one, this one is right up there, and it influenced me early on. I mean, '66, I started playing guitar in early '65, so I was still kind of a, a neophyte at that point. And this album helped set um, a course, set a direction, and a style and a sound that I then pursued. But I mean, it, it was it was a stepping stone because I then got into Clapton. Once I heard the Blues Breakers album with Eric Clapton, I then got into that sound, and that I mean, and that took me further, you know, and following Page. I was ready for Led Zeppelin when Led Zeppelin happened, and it wasn't like it came for a lot of people. It came out of the blue, like they bought this album, like who are these guys? And wow, you know, blown away. But I knew it. I knew that there was this transition. I knew that there was this this foundation that was there that Zeppelin were taking from, and doing it their own way, but also doing it better, you know, putting their own stamp on it. As I said, the first album was, first album was great. I mean, you put the needle on that first album. And again, I go back to vinyl. I, I don't listen to vinyl much anymore. I have thousands of albums, but I have digital. It's just easier. But back, you know, there's still a warmth. There's still a depth of sound to vinyl. And I can remember putting the needle on the first track of that Led Zeppelin album. No expectations. And hearing good times, bad times, that and the and the drumming. I mean, one of the key elements of Led Zeppelin uh, is uh, John Bonham's drumming, and he doesn't get the credit. He really does not get the credit. If you listen to his drumming on the first two albums, and, you know, obviously after that, true, of course, but those first two albums, I mean, it's just incredible. And they and they they Jimmy Page mic'd him like it was a live situation. He had him in the middle of the floor. And he had the guys sort of around him as if they were setting up like on a stage. You know, usually the drummer's in the middle, you know. And he kept the mics far. He put a distance between like the kick drum and the mic, you know, the snare and the tom-toms and the mic. Whereas most, in the studio, most drummers, recording engineers will put the mic inside the kick drum. Or right, you know, literally inches from the tom-tom or the snare. Page wanted that sense of air. Because in a live situation... When he hits that kick drum, and you're in the audience, even if you're in the front row, there's air there. You feel it. And that's what he got live. He got a live sound in the studio with John Bonham. And, uh, I mean, he was just, it was the right guy. So it was the right combination. Because John Paul Jones, no slouch at all on the bass. You know, and it's funny, the weakest guy in that first album is Robert Plant. And I don't mean that like he can't sing, because he can sing. But the lyrics that he wrote were really dumb. I mean, it's just, you know, picking up chicks sort of lyrics, you know? Very misogynist. It took him until the second album and a couple of tracks on the second album to finally find his voice. And by voice, I mean his what he was going to write about and what he was going to sing. But in many ways, his voice on the first album and the second album is treated like an instrument. I mean, you don't listen to, you know, squeeze my lemon till it drips down my leg kind of stuff. You don't listen to the lyrics of that, but listen to his voice. And listen to his voice like it's another instrument. And that's what made him so unique to start with. I'm, I'm veering all over the place, Jonathan. No, it's good. It's, no, okay. yeah, no, it's all very interesting. <laughs> I, yeah, very interesting. Well, kind of going on, on even with the Zeppelin thing, um, you know, after, after Paul Butterfield Blues Band kind of, 
you know, because I, th- I think he had gone on and done. I was just yeah, he did he better days, which was stuff. kind of a folky bluesy kind of thing. He he kind of lost direction, and, and a lot of it had to do with his uh, personal habits. Mm-hmm. So after he had kind of you know the band had kind of broken up, he did his own thing. Was there like what kind of bands had that like were were directly influenced with that Chicago blues kind of into the seventies, or was it just did the British kind of take over and that was. Yeah, and, it. and it was the British taking over, but but revering the Chicago blues style, but doing it their way. Mm-hmm. You know, the Rolling Stones recorded at Chess Studios, and that was a big deal for them. I mean, that was like their mecca. Fleetwood Mac, the, you know, the bluesy Peter Green Fleetwood Mac recorded at Chess Studios with Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon on bass and all that sort of thing. So they still revered that sound and that style. But we don't get back to that sound and style really in a big way until Stevie Ray Vaughan. And Stevie Ray... He's like a throwback, but not. I mean, Stevie took the Chicago blues sound of, a, of an Otis Rusher or a buddy guy, and he took Jimi Hendrix. And he, he, he married the two. And he made a contemporary sound that had authenticity to it. I mean, that, that's like opposites there, I guess, in a way, contemporary and authentic. But he took the blues riffs, the blues style, the blues sound, and he brought in the Hendrix style and sound and brought the two of them together and he can I mean you know and Robert Cray and others will of course you know follow in in his wake that kind of thing but even though there were other blues players within that sort of period of time in between it's really Stevie Ray that that, that brings us back to brings us back to Mike Bloomfield brings us back to the, the Chicago blues and makes us aware of who these guys are again and and also the guys like that makes us aware of people like Mike Bloomfield, who he you know who he mentions, you know he who he you know he's, he tips his hat to, because he's you know he's he's like us in that he was an American kid listening to Chicago electric blues of, of Mike Bloomfield and the Butterfield Blues Band. And what year was did Stevie Ray Vaughan kind of kick in? Was in the eighties? Eighties? Yeah, in the eighties. Yeah, and you know I, you know there's there's not really a lot of you know, American kind of blues bands anymore. And I understand that's just kind of rock taking its course in a way, and there hasn't mm-hmm. really been a big rock movement in the past while that I can remember, really since the 90s even. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this band, um, this current band named Greta Van Fleet. They're, you, you should take Johnny, a I don't listen to a lot of new yeah, music. Yeah. I'm the old guy. <laughs> but they're kind of getting, it's an interesting thing of, of either like homage or flack for they basically sound exactly like Led Zeppelin. Like not, obviously not as good musically, but the, even the way, like the mannerisms of the singer, like he's embodying Robert Plant and it's really weird to see and to hear. Yeah, you should check them out because it's like they sound and like they've gotten a ton of, a ton of flack for it because it's like you guys are literally sounding, like I understand taking, you know, um, well, being inspired by, being yes. influenced by, and they obviously are, and they're not. They're not pretending that they're not inspired by Led Zeppelin, but it's it's scary. <laughs> but yeah, like for me, like I just I I feel like rock hasn't really had much of a movement since really like the '90s. So yeah, I, that's and, why it's interesting going back and listening to. You know, obviously I've 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 grown up a big classic rock fan, but when you had mentioned Paul Butterfield Blues Band, I honestly never even heard of them before. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, maybe that's just my youngness, but it w- it was it's really interesting going back and listening to that. You no, know, as I said, it, 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 the times have forgotten them, you know. And there's plenty of people who are my age that didn't know about the Butterfield Blues Band. As like I said, when I did the class and I started with Mike Bloomfield, it was like a revelation. Like, who is this guy? He's great. Uh, time has forgotten them, and I mean that happens. I mean the the, the music. 
pop music, I guess if you want to put them into that sense, or, you know, popular music, it's generally very fleeting. There, there, there are very few Beatles or Stones who carry, or who, that, that, that carry on. But the odd thing is, Paul McCartney, um, the thing is, though, nobody buys Stones records that are new. Stones put out live albums that they do a blues album. And one of the things that they went and did an old Chicago blues-style album. Because when people go to their concerts and they go in the, you know, in the millions, they're going to hear Satisfaction. They want to hear Jumpin' Jack, Flash, Start Me Up. They want to hear those songs, they hear the songs that they kind of grew up with. And if the Stones do a new song, it's kind oh, of time to go to the washroom. Hey, when I get a beer. You know, I mean, it's really sad but true. What keeps these artists going, and you can lump people like Springsteen into this too, what keeps these artists going is the old stuff. I mean, now, in, in case of these groups, we're not going back to 1965 necessarily, maybe the Stones, but um, it's, it's that nostalgia factor that's so big. Now, what happens when this, when, when this class of classic rockers dies? What's going to take its place? I mean, you have to consider the classic rock bands that, or artists that fall into the classic rock title are the biggest selling touring acts in the world. And they are, I mean, they're still, Paul McCartney's gonna make, you know, probably half a billion dollars on this latest tour. And again, nobody's coming to hear his latest song. Nobody. Um, what happens when they're all gone? What happens when we lose all the classic rockers? And we are, I mean, David Bowie and Prince and Tom Petty. I mean, we're losing them every year. More and more of them are biting the dust. And you know, Robert Plant is 70. I mean, God help us. I hope he lives a nice long life. But they're all getting on. They're, and, and who's going to be coming up to replace them? Will there still be that same nostalgia factor? Will there be people in their 50s and 60s who want to go see Britney Spears in 30 years <laughs> singing Hit Me Baby one more time? Yeah. You know, w- will that music have the same nostalgia to it, connected to it? I think it will. I think because music is a touchstone. No matter what age you are, certain songs will connect you with your past or events or whatever coming of age was happening with you at that time. And Hit Me Baby One More Time will be and is a touchstone for kids who were 13 at the time or 12 or less. Um, And so it'll always have that ring for them and that connection and that touchstone. But does it mean that it's going to be, uh, it's going to translate into huge arena shows like McCartney or The Stones or, you know, Deep Purple? I mean, if Led Zeppelin got back together, well, I mean, obviously not with John Bonham, of course, but if the three of them and maybe Jason Bonham got together and toured, it would be, well, I mean, <laughs> it would be like the second coming of Christ. Yeah. I mean, seriously. And, you know, it would be the biggest money-spinning tour of all time. No question. I mean, you could charge, it doesn't matter what you charge for tickets, people will pay it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then all the merchandise because they're appealing, they're, they're, they're appealing more to me than you because you don't have any money. I have money. So I'm going to pay 300, 400 bucks for a ticket. I'm going to buy the, the t shirt that costs them $2 to make and they sell it to me for $60, you know, because I want to show everybody I went to that show. So yeah, they, they had done that. Um I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, they did that huge show in London where it was, yeah, I think it was Jason Bonham on drums, mm-hmm. or it was just the one time only. 
and it was just like huge and they were able to release the live album off of that obviously and get get more revenue off that but yeah, yeah that's true but you know in their case they don't need the money no it's i mean there are a lot of artists who are out there because they need the money but not the stones and not led zeppelin so i mean they did the right thing and i always thought the who did the wrong thing when uh john bonham died they said that's it and you know they've never they haven't toured they've done this little thing and that little thing once in a while but when Keith Moon died, oh, well, Keith would have wanted us to carry on. So they bring in another guy in the tour for a while, and they get another drummer. And then John Entwistle dies. Well, John would want us to carry on. You know, it's, just, mm-hmm. it's like the band is just by attrition kind of narrowing itself down, but still touring. Why are they touring? Nobody cares about the new music. They want to hear I Won't Get Fooled Again. They want that rush that they got when they were 19 years old and they first heard that record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, I went to the Paul McCartney show just a couple of weeks now. And, you know, I, I understand that he's touring for his new album, like touring, quotation marks, for his new album. Um, but he only played, yeah, four or five songs off of it. And whenever he did, that was when you saw everybody get up, go to the bathroom. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, not. it's the polite applause. Yeah. And yeah, he's obviously not, at this point, he doesn't need the money to tour. But I think he just, you know, uh, these guys still love to do it. And I think that's the same thing with, you know, with Bruce, too. My dad had seen, seen Bruce Springsteen like eight times now. Um, I thought it was 80. <laughs> it could be 80. Um, but he's just such an you know energetic performer. And the fact that he still plays for three and a half hours mm-hmm. when he's just like, you know, pushing 70, he obviously just loves to do it. And that's right. I mean, and I've read that about Springsteen is he needs to do it. it, it it's like a need within him. And it validates who he is. He's also a guy that suffered a lot of depression in his life. And... It's the music that gets him out of that and keeps him away from that because when he's away from the music, then he suffers depression. Um, so it, it, it's a need within him to do that. And yeah, I mean, these long, long shows that he does. Here's the thing, though. I mean, I think Springsteen is still putting out vital music. I don't think Paul McCartney has put out anything vital in 25 years. And I'm probably being very generous in saying 25 years. He is... Here's the thing. When he came to Winnipeg a couple of years ago and he played the outdoor one, you know, the Investor's Field? Yeah. Okay, so the Free Press, you know, they always contact various people for comments, and I'm the music history guy, so they've got to wheel me out with something to say. And I said, I said, he's a nostalgia act. He's not playing the—he's not Jerry and the Pacemakers playing the casino here in town or Herman's Hermits without Herman playing the McPhillip Street Station. But he's the same as they are. He's a nostalgia act in a bigger venue— because he's he's people are coming for the old stuff and he's giving it to them, mm-hmm. and and this is what I heard because Jill Pekin of Pekin Entertainment had, was involved with the concert or whatever, and he was with McCartney when he saw the article in the paper and read it, and he was really mad at my comment about him being a nostalgia act, oh, no. <laughs> and apparently Kevin Donnelly was really ticked at me <laughs> as well. But uh, you know, so, I mean, I can, I can, I can take some pride in the fact that Paul McCartney read what I said. But I'm certainly not his friend. I won't get invited to his next wedding. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he'd, he'd, you know, openly admit it. But I hope he realizes that. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, and you know, going on with Bruce, I think obviously his, you know, his, he's not going to have a, you know, number one classic album that he's going to put out in 2018. But you know, even after 9/11, when he had that whole rising, mm-hmm. the rising oh. album, you know. And again, maybe it's not going to go down in history as, you know, a, a timeless album that you have to listen to, but he's still saying some interesting things on his new his new projects. So. Yep. Yeah. Well, The Rising was a very vital album. It was yeah. well-timed. Yeah. Uh, it hit 
uh, you know, hit hit the world because it's not just North America. Hit hit the world at the right time for him. And, and you know, his career had kind of you know careers kind of go up and down. His career was down around that. I mean, he wasn't playing the Holiday Inn, but you know, his career was down, and that album brought him back up because he was still Rose's vital. Career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, so, so the Paul Butterfield Blues album um, obviously influenced you, kind of you know, musically, right? So. Um, when when you went on to to be in various bands, you probably took a lot of that influence when you were playing. Yes. Um, so, were there any other albums that have kind of you know influenced you in other parts of your life, like maybe in your writing or other things like that? Or it, um, you know, I I debated when you first contacted me. I debated two albums. Well, three, because I thought about the Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton album. I thought about that because um, it did have a big influence on me. But it, I needed I needed Bloomfield first. To, to connect me to the blues. But the, I, I toyed with either the Butterfield album or Bob Dylan's uh, Highway 61 Revisited. I mean, Bloomfield played on both. He plays aggressively on Highway 61, no question, but you know, not as aggressively as with Paul Butterfield. But Highway 61 Revisited for me was an album where I started taking uh, an interest in lyrics and started to listen to lyrics and not just music. Because Dylan changed the game for everybody in 65 with Like a Rolling Stone. And with the birds doing his Mr. Tambourine Man. I mean, up to that point, everything was, was moon, June, spoon, and boy, girl, hold hands, fall in love, fall out of love, pine for her, pine for him, and then get back together kind of stuff. And you look at the early Beatles songs, I mean, for the, for the first five albums, and it's, it's boy, girl stuff. And it's love in a relationship context. It's really not, they don't get into the, the notion of un, the universality of love in a, in a humankind sense until Rubber Soul in December of 65 where, where there's a song that John writes called The Word. Say the word, what's the word? The word is love. And it's not love for a girl. It's love for mankind or humankind. You know? So they're starting to see a little more universal concepts then. But Dylan changed all of that because he brought to rock and roll on Highway 61 Revisited, he brought to rock and roll a literary sense. Um, he, he, you know, you, you were reading his poetry as if you were reading some of the great poets, you know, and both, even poets from like the 19th century or 18th century, because um, he came from that tradition as well as coming from Little Richard and, and all of that kind of thing as well. But he, he, he took rock and roll from Moon, June, Spoon, I Want to Hold Your Hand, I Saw Her Standing There, you know... Uh, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. To songs that that had uh, had a little more depth, a little more meaning. You know, to dance between the diamond sky with one hand waving free, silhouetted by the sea, circled by the frozen sand, with all memory and fate uh, driven deep beneath the wave of crazy sorrow. That's Mr. Tambourine Man. I mean, that beats the hell out of. I saw she was just seventeen, and you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, because you couldn't sing Whatever that nowadays that anyway. Fall, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah that's he, br- he brought that real sense of poetry. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody that's written lyrics to songs, I don't care whether you're Kanye West or whoever, everybody since 1965 owes a debt to Bob Dylan for changing the game. And he did. He changed the game for everybody. And you could then have songs as mushy as MacArthur Park but still had a poetic sense to them. Yeah. So I debated about bringing that one too. Yeah. But if it, the guitar thing was bigger because I was not a singer, so I, but the guitar player yeah. had a big influence on me. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's about all the questions I have. So 
thank you very much for joining me and being on the first episode of this podcast. And I couldn't couldn't think of a more knowledgeable person in the Winnipeg music scene <laughs> to have on than you for this. So, well, thank thanks, thanks, Jonathan. It was it was fun for me to be able to talk about. Some of the albums that I don't necessarily teach classes about, you know, I mean, I'm talking about, I, I did a class on Motown, that kind of thing recently. I'm starting one uh, tomorrow on the 50s, you know, rock around the clock and all that sort of thing. It was fun for me to to explore in more than just, um, more than just a historical context. It's really look at how this music felt to me and how this music impacted me and more than just as a guitar player, but certainly as a guitar player as well. Um, and, and it shaped me. I mean, I've always felt, I mean, I came from a family where nobody played any instruments. Nobody was musical. The only thing that was ever played in the house was a record player. And the kind of music on the record player was just middle of the road, instrumental stuff. Um, so when I discovered the guitar and, you know, that came from the Beatles and the British Invasion and all of that, I took to it very quickly. And, and it, it's like I had... You know, I mean, I've, I've been playing guitar for 53 years. It's like I, I, I felt an instant affinity to it, and I learned quickly. I, I, I try, I, my parents had me take lessons because that's what you're supposed to do. And the teacher was teaching me Red River Valley, you know, and, and I could play Day Tripper by ear. So oof, I took three lessons and, and jacked it in and taught myself how to play. And I still have a really good ear. I'm doing a gig this February with a bunch of guys. It's called Tecapalooza. And it's all guys from tech industries, and they put bands together. And you can have a ringer in each band. And I'm, I'm the ringer in one of the bands. And you know, we have some songs to learn. And again, I can hear them and figure out and play them. So I've been I've been fortunate that way. But music set for me uh, a direction in my life. I don't know what I would have become had I not discovered music. Yeah, I mean, I did university, and I you know I became a teacher and all of that. But I never lost being a musician you know it's my it's my passion and it it identifies me with with who i am and defines me i guess is what i'm trying to say um and it's set a direction for my life and i've been fortunate in my life to be able to make music to continue to make music a part of my life i don't have to sit in the back of an econoline van with five of the chain smoking guys heading for moose jaw to play a gig you know i and i've been able to do rock show productions and write about music and still play so for me it uh yeah it's it is my life so I appreciate the chance to come in and talk about it. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Thank you so much for listening to the show today. And a big thank you to John Anderson for being the inaugural guest on the show. Be sure to follow Cadence on Instagram and Facebook at Cadence Podcast. Watch out for posts this week on who the next guest is and what album we will be discussing. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.